0: This is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. It's impossible not to open one's throat to song, bursting, crying out. Look, look what I've discovered, look what was here all along. From the poem Robins at Dawn, written by me, K.B. Marie. And this is the true story of who killed my mother. How well do you know your mother? Truly? If you were adopted, orphaned, or otherwise separated from her, you're excused from this interrogation. But for the rest of us, How well do you know her? Think about it. Rarely do we ask our mothers about their lives before us. Rarely do we glean more than the details shared in passing. Usually little to nothing from their childhoods. We're too busy living our own. In my case, this is the version of my mother's life that I'd heard. I'd known that she'd grown up in Nashville, Tennessee, with my grandparents. That she was one of four kids in the house, though she was the firstborn to my grandfather and grandmother. Hank Jr. had been my grandfather's first child from his first marriage. My Aunt Renee had been my grandmother's child from her first marriage. Mom and Joe were the two children they'd had together, Joe being the youngest by five years. I'd also known that at 12, my mother had tried to kill herself, that around the same time she'd developed seizures, that she'd never finished 8th grade, that she'd run away with David No. 1 at 16. By 18, she'd left David No. 1 and had begun traveling around the church circuits with my grandmother. My grandmother preached, and my mother sang. It was in a church not far from St. Louis, Missouri, that she met my father two months before she turned 19. Within three months, she'd married him and had stayed with him until he was convicted of rape in 1988. I'd also known that Hank, the older half-brother, had molested her, that sometimes at night, he'd climbed into her bed and touched her. But the few times that this had been mentioned, I'd been under the impression that this hadn't happened often. I'd never put it together that the suicide had been the result of sexual assault, that her addiction problems, were caused by PTSD, and chronic, severe, and unresolved trauma. But what Shay tells me next, the words that follow, are, Your grandfather was the worst. And, I don't know if you need to hear that, hun, pulls my mother's entire life into focus. It's like putting on glasses for the first time, and realizing just how out of frame the picture has been all along. Tell me, I insist. I'm just gonna keep asking until you do. Because I can be dogged when I want. It's not easy for me to let go of something that I have my heart set on. And now, I have my heart set on the truth. All I have left of my mother is the memories. Her stories. And I want them all. Well, your grandfather put a gun to her head and forced her to blow him. Later he raped her. The world tilts. The precarious ground I'd balanced on all my life tips pitches me forward. It went on for years. When did it start? She was ten or eleven when it started. That's why she tried to kill herself with his gun when she was twelve, and she would have managed it if he hadn't caught her and taken it away. I didn't know that she had tried with a gun. I thought it had been pills, I say. The metaphorical floor may be gone beneath me, but in its place is a crystalline image of why my mother had tried to kill herself so young, why her mental illness had developed so early, why she'd failed out of middle school and had never returned. I thought it had been because her father had her selling pills at school that she'd been caught and suspended for it, and that might be part of it. But we also know that a sexually abused girl's grades deteriorate quickly. It even makes sense why she developed seizures, A 1979 article from the National Library of Medicine called Hysterical Seizures, quote, the sequel to incestuous rape, and I know from my own destructive romantic patterns why her two failed marriages had followed. When someone doesn't love you like they should, when your self-worth and esteem are so demolished that nothing but self-loathing can grow in its place, you find other people to mistreat you, Others who will make you feel used, unwanted, unloved. The demons you know are better than the demons you can imagine, because you can always imagine worse. But Nana... I began, my heart pounding in my ears. Oh, she didn't do shit. She just looked the other way. She knew it was happening. No wonder my mother had felt so unheard. Unseen. When I was a child... And my mother was being dramatic or attention-seeking, I would callously dismiss this as middle child syndrome. Now this behavior has a far more sinister origin story, and I'm ashamed. Not only does this information bring focus to my mother's life, but it also clarifies a few of my experiences that I hadn't really understood before hearing it. Once I had woken in the night to the sound of drumming. Three- or four-year-old me had gotten up and had seen little figures marching across her pillow. Terrified, I'd crawled out of my bed, crying, and went out into the living room, where I found my mother watching television alone. What's wrong? she asked me, and I had tried to articulate in that small child way that I'd had a bad dream, that there were, in fact, tiny shadow people marching around in my bedding and I couldn't possibly go back to sleep. Well, go lay down with your dad, she said but I'd refused. I hadn't wanted to go into another dark room. I wanted to stay in the light with her. You don't want to lay down with your dad, she asked. And she had given me such a grave look that I remember being confused. There had always been a hypervigilance and sometimes overreactive response to the moments that could have suggested sexual abuse when I was a child. When my kindergarten teacher had taken me into the bathroom, had pulled down my pants and spanked me because I wouldn't stop talking in class. My mother had lost it. She'd gone to the school. She'd pushed the woman against the wall, telling her that if she ever pulled my pants down again, she was going to kill her with her own hands. Then there was the time I'd gotten what I'm pretty sure was a bladder infection, and my Aunt Lana had secreted me away to the doctor. It wasn't until we were in the little room, and she'd begun to explain her suspicions that I realized what she thought was happening. And then, like a self-fulfilling prophecy, all this fear that I might be sexually abused by someone did in fact lead to trauma. When they forced my legs open and scraped around inside of me for evidence that wasn't there, I'd screamed. I'd begged them to stop. I remember being sore for days after. I was only six or seven years old when this happened, and I have no memory of being sexually abused or touched in any way before or after but I sure do remember the day in the doctor's office, and I bear the marks of my medical terror to this day. My doctor has never been able to get a blood pressure reading under 140 when I'm in her office. For visits when I have to get a pap smear, it can easily top 160. She was so concerned by this that she asked me to get a cough and to test myself at home. When I reported back that it was only 108 over 69, she told me about white coat syndrome, some people just get very nervous in the doctor's office. Yeah, I'd said. That must be it. And my wife hadn't understood why, when I'd needed an MRI to diagnose my migraines, I'd nearly hyperventilated when they forced me to lay back on the table, to be very still, while they injected me with the solution that would light up my brain. Why, when lying in the tube, I'd been paralyzed with fear, my voice trapped in my throat, as terror rolled through me in palpable waves, why i shook for 15 minutes after. I don't know if this is what PTSD is like, but if it is, no wonder my mother tried to end her life. If she'd had to ride this razor edge of helplessness and terror every night that she lay down in her own bed, waiting for him to come into her room, to hurt her, again and again, while no one helped her, No one stopped it. Not even her own mother. No wonder she'd lost her mind. I probably don't need to tell you that I grew up without knowing my grandfather was a rapist. This was something no one, and I mean no one, ever talked about. This is the man I remembered. Blonde haired. Brown-eyed, with gaunt, severe cheeks. He shaved daily, but always had stubble. He reeked of Old Spice. He liked to slick his hair back using these combs he kept in a strange blue solution on the bathroom sink. He smoked like it was going out of style. He liked bomber jackets and aviator sunglasses. When he was shirtless, you could see the military tattoo on his bicep. I can't remember it clearly now, but I think there was an eagle involved. Because he worked as a mechanic, the underside of his nails were always dark with grease, and he had a candy tin beside his white leather recliner, filled with only two things, those sugared orange slices and black licorice jelly beans. He always lit up when he saw me, called me, "Papa's sweet baby, kissed me feverishly on my cheeks. When we had to go to the gas station, he'd let me ride shotgun in his black Al Camino and always bought me a sundae from the dispenser there. Vanilla soft serve with rainbow sprinkles and sometimes a dollop of whipped cream. Apart from the one time he'd lost his temper, and had accused me of breaking his garage window, he'd never hit me, never yelled. There was nothing to give me the impression that he was anything but a hard-working man who provided for his family, making sure everyone had what they needed. But when I got older, I heard a few more stories. One was about the whorehouse. I use the word whorehouse not as a way to demean sex workers, but because this is literally what my grandmother called it. When used in a sentence, she might say, back when your grandfather ran his whorehouse. In one version, there were three women who lived there, and my grandfather would send men that he'd met at his garage over to the house. He'd take his pay cut. Sometimes he visited the women himself. My grandmother, with a disturbing amount of affection in her voice, had once told me how she befriended one of the women who lived there, how she had called one day looking for her wayward husband, and the girls had said, Oh, honey, don't you worry. He still loves you. He'll be home soon. I'd even been told that my grandfather had sent my mother over there to collect money from the women. At the time, I had been scandalized. Why in God's name would you do that? Didn't he think it was a dangerous place to send a little girl? But now, his complete disregard for her safety makes sense. David Number 3 insisted that these women weren't women at all, that most of those passing through the whorehouse had been underage girls. Shay tells me that my mother's first lesbian experience had happened there, that my mother had slept with one of the women working. I don't know what else happened in this house, but I shudder to think of what might have gone on to my mother, or anyone else. Another less gut-wrenching story that illustrates my grandfather's appetites is about the possibility of a half-Korean illegitimate son. I was older when my mother told me that Papa had fathered some kid when he was stationed in Korea. The stories around this unnamed Korean woman were ambiguous. In one version, my grandfather had raped her. In another, she was a prostitute. In a third, that the relationship had been consensual until he was deployed to somewhere else. Your guess is as good as mine as to which is true. My mother had later joked, Imagine my surprise when this Asian guy showed up at the garage and said he was my brother. When I had pressed her for more information, she'd only been able to tell me a few details. Well, he seemed like a nice guy, friendly, polite. He was studying to be a doctor, I think. He just wanted to meet Daddy and see what he was about. Now that I know who my grandfather really was, what really happened, I finally understand why the move back to Nashville after my father's arrest and imprisonment had been so bad for my mother. Her drinking really hadn't been serious until we moved back. It was 1988, and she'd just turned 25, and this would have been her third failed attempt to escape her father, if we count both marriages and the suicide only to find herself financially dependent on him again. This cycle must have reinforced all her old feelings of helplessness, of being trapped, that no matter what she did, where she went, she couldn't get away. And I have no doubt that this was a financial decision. With no education, few options, and a child to feed, she didn't have many choices. And it wasn't like she hadn't tried other things, David number 3 tells me that she tried prostitution. She tried getting involved with other men who could provide a roof over her head, a place for me to sleep, but that life hadn't been sustainable. So she'd been forced to come home, forced, to move her now five-year-old daughter into the very bedroom where she'd lost everything. And what must she have felt when she saw me, her only baby, climb onto her rapist's lap? Heard me laughing, What had she felt when he'd bounced me on his knee, tickled me, or stroked my hair? When he fed me candy from his tin by the chair? When he took me for ice cream? Took me anywhere out of her sight? How a ticking clock must have resounded through her mind every minute of every day that I was within his reach. Had it been me, drinking, would have been the least of it. With a more complete picture of my mother's history, I become deeply interested in trauma research. I read every book I can get my hands on. And it's the friend with a PhD in psychology that turns me on to ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. She sent me the CDC's interactive page that allows you to see how each rough childhood experience compounds your risk of long-term problems. Types of ACEs include physical, emotional, and sexual abuse physical and emotional neglect, and situational household problems, such as a caregiver with mental illness, a mother treated violently, divorce, substance abuse, or having an incarcerated relative. People who score high on the ACEs test are more likely to smoke, to become alcoholics or drug addicts, to miss work. They're also prone to obesity, diabetes, COPD, stroke, cancer, heart disease, and are even more likely to break a bone, along with the symptoms that you're more likely to expect, such as suicide attempts and depression. The limitations of this test seem to be the lack of data on how positive experiences might increase childhood resilience, or how other traumas, such as living in poverty or discrimination, affect these outcomes. I took the quiz and received an A score of 7. I can only imagine that my mother's score would be at least as high, probably higher. To give you context, any score over 4 is considered serious and the highest score you can get is 10. There is much talk about how trauma runs in families, that narratives are passed down along your genes for at least three generations. In one study, mice were exposed to the scent of cherry blossoms and given an electrical shock. In the next generation, when the offspring of those shocked mice were exposed to the scent of cherry blossoms, they displayed all the same physiological panic their parents had, even though they'd never been shocked themselves. It was like the fear of a certain trigger had been passed along. I don't know how far back my own family's history goes, and so I can't give a full account of our trauma record. I know that my grandfather, born in 1927, had run away at age 10, stowing away on a train that he probably hoped would carry him to greater prospects. And I can't imagine happy children stowing away in train cars so we can assume what things might have been like at home. I'd also been told that my grandmother's mother had died when she was a baby. That my great grandmother had been beaten to death by her husband, my grandmother's father. That someone had found my nana at her mother's breast. It's unclear if nana was nursing on her dead mother, or if she was simply being held close by the corpse's rigid arms. In the book The Body Keeps the Score, there are compelling passages about how trauma literally rewires your brain. Causes you to feel and experience things that normal people don't, a hyper awareness to threat and uncertainty, which I can attest to firsthand. I also gleaned another piece of critical information from the text. Every single one of my mother's symptoms, from her low sense of self to her inexplicable bouts of rage, her mental disorder and PTSD, all of it falls right in line with the majority of women who share her background. Even the caregiving patterns, that sexually abused mothers tend to be dependent mothers, who reverse the role of mother and child, as demonstrated in all the times my mother was unable to anticipate or meet my needs, and instead required that I fulfill hers. Then there was the PTSD itself. If you're unfamiliar with PTSD, it can cause sudden and fully immersive flashbacks. These flashbacks can come on suddenly without warning, at the slightest of triggers. When they do, your body reacts in such a complete and visceral way that the brain scans will show the same physiological and psychological responses that your body experienced when the trauma was actually happening. These painful, intrusive experiences are so real, even on the biological level, it might as well be happening to you again. We tend to think of soldiers when we hear the word PTSD, But this book argues sexually abused children also have it, leading them to self-medicate with pills and alcohol, and all of this was compounded by the element of shame. And unfortunately, sexual abuse victims have a lot of shame. They might think things like, he's hurting me because I deserve it, or it doesn't matter that he's hurting me, there's nothing I can do about it anyway. Sexual abuse victims can even become confused about whether or not they consented to the acts, Because the body betrays, it responds to sexual contact whether the contact is abuse or not. A raped child's body begins producing sex hormones. A rape turns on the reproductive factory even if the factory should remain shuttered for years more. And the abusers exploit this, twist it back on the child in a second, psychological abuse. What child doesn't want to make her parents happy? To connect with the one person without whom they wouldn't receive the care they needed to survive? Learning all of this was a mixed blessing. On one hand, it makes me deeply sad on my mother's behalf. How much she endured. How much she survived. Only to have her life ended by another uncaring man. But it also causes a surprising relief within me. Something cracks open there's a reason, I realize. For all of it, none of the ways my mother had hurt me were personal. She hadn't set out to ruin my childhood or break my heart. She had simply been at the center of a devastating detonation. And I'd simply been there to absorb all the shock waves that had followed. All of this together, the family stories and the literature on trauma, helped to illustrate the landscape of my family illuminate the dark soil from which I was born, how and why my grandfather's chronic abuse had completely and irreparably fractured my mother's mind, her spirit, why she jumped from one abusive relationship to another, why no matter what I did, I couldn't liberate her from her learned helplessness. When I tell people about my mother's past, about my past, their responses are strikingly similar. How are you so normal? Am I normal? I ask. Cause I spent four hours researching how to dissolve a body in a bathtub today, and if you could survive being nail gunned in the head, which you can, by the way, if you take the nail in just the right spot. As with most questions like this, I lead with jokes. But my more serious answer is this. I may be normal now, but I wasn't always. Me at 20 years old wasn't so different than my mother at 20. In fact, I'd argue that we were on exactly the same path. By 24, I was depressed, suicidal, and bulimic. I was in hell. So what happened? Why was I able to pull myself out of a tailspin, and my mother couldn't? This is a question that haunts me, one that I ask myself over and over again, as if I expect to wake and find that all my happiness has been a dream. In light of these discoveries, we now know why my mother's trauma affected her deeply and affected me. But what about Joe? Joe would have been 5 years old when his father began raping his sister. He would have been 11 when she ran away with the first husband. Those 6 years are formative years, and it's a small house. The bedrooms are close together. We can assume that he would have seen something, heard something he wouldn't have escaped all of that unscathed. And this says nothing of the trauma he might have experienced directly, the hardship of being raised by a man like my grandfather, of seeing his mother and sisters mistreated. And hadn't he also been sent to school with pills in his pockets? Hadn't he also taken more than a few knocks across the head? Might he, like my mother, have developed a personality disorder? Antisocial personality disorder, sometimes called sociopathy, is defined by Mayo Clinic as a mental disorder in which a person shows symptoms including aggression toward people, destruction of property, deceitfulness, theft, and other criminal behavior. I am not qualified to diagnose a psychological disorder, but these symptoms align with my uncle's history and behavior pretty well. Could it be that a fractured family like mine produces not only victims, but can also turn an innocent five-year-old boy into a sociopathic man, did his unresolved trauma teach Joe that his sister was unlovable, dispensable, simply another means to an end? This episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Marie. And the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news. There is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir. To be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts, you can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends and I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.